Good morning, Thrive. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. And along with Reagan Gilliland, who's also a pastor here on staff and also happens to be my wife, we get to co-pastor this community that we call Thrive. And I want to welcome you here with us this morning. If this is your first time with us, we want to say a special word of greeting. We hope that if nothing else, uh, you leave here knowing that our mission statement is true in both word and action, that we want to love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're with us online, we we greet you as well. We're glad you're able to join us, whether you're at at home staying warm or if you're sick or traveling on the road, we're glad that you could join us online as well. Today, we're going to continue in a sermon series that we've been walking through since the beginning of the year called United We Love. We've been talking about the ways in which uh, the mission of Jesus Christ brings together people in a unique and surprising way, uh, and this has always been part of God's story and God's plan, and we've seen this both in the Old and New Testaments. Today, we're going to begin looking at um, the, the, the work of the early church. We're going to be in the book of Acts. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts 10, if you've got them with you, we're going to be in Acts 10 today. Before we go there, though, I want to talk about what we're talking about today, why we're going to be in the book of Acts. So last week, I, I preached a sermon on the book of Micah and the words that Micah has for a people who are on the edge of exile. And we talked about how the Christian faith in America is on the edge of exile, that we're, we're seeing the, the stats and the numbers decline. We know that the influence of the Christian faith as we've known it and the institution of the church as we've known it is changing and the numbers are declining. And we know that in the next generation or two to come, it's a very real possibility uh, that Christians are a very much a minority in the culture that we once uh, believed ourselves to be a majority in. And so that has led us to ask some really hard questions, and, and, and it leads us to consider how we are approaching and encountering and engaging with people who are meeting the church or leaving the church or wrestling within the church. We talked about that last week. This week, I want to talk about something that, that I've been thinking about as we stand on the edge of exile as we consider the kinds of people who are going to be encountering and, uh, and engaging with the church, uh, one thing I can tell you w- without any doubt in my mind is that we will be dealing with more and more questions. People will be bringing with them more and more questions than perhaps ever before. Maybe you feel this in yourself. Maybe the questions of your faith have grown over time. Maybe you're experiencing this with your children or with other family members who are wrestling with their faith or, or maybe even on the outside looking in wondering if they have a spot in the church. Um, but I think that questions are going to be more and more and more important for us to be able to handle well as the people called Christian, right? And, and there's a couple different routes that we can take uh, with questions. I was just thinking this past week about, uh, about this. I, Reagan and I had some friends over for dinner. This was a couple of years ago. And they go to a, a, a church of significant size in the area. And um, we were asking them about what they love about this church, you know. Um, and in no way, you know, upset they don't come to ours. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, and so we were just, you know, what do you love about this church? And, um, and the, the husband said with, with a, just a t- completely straight, serious face, he goes, I love that they tell me what to believe. I said, say more about that. He says, yeah, I don't like, it takes the guesswork out of it. Like he just, the pastor will just tell me exactly what to think about what the scripture says and like how to understand it and what to believe about this stuff. 
And I, like, you could, like, Reagan was like, stop, you can read your face, you're a bad poker player. Like, my jaw was like on the ground, and like, he was really deadly serious. That is what he loves about his church. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this. That, I hope that's not the approach that you think we take here at Lover's Lane. Um, and I don't know that that's an approach that's going to prove successful as we move further and further into this age of exile as the Christian faith. Because we have got a generation growing up right now, and I can only imagine the one to come. Like, I think about my kids, Andy and Jude. And I think about their generation, and I cannot imagine that being told what to think and believe is going to be a value for that generation. If you're raising kids in that generation, uh, could you say amen if you agree with me? Right? We, we are living in what we call a divergent culture where people are carving their own paths and they don't necessarily want to assimilate into the Borg like we once did, right? And people want to be individuals. They want to be unique. They want to be independent. They want to make up their own minds for themselves. And so what do we do with that as the Christian faith? The question I want us to wrestle with today is what is unique about the Methodist approach to answering questions of faith. So as we've been talking about in this series, you know, one thing that, that Stan and I and other, uh, the other preachers, Didi have, and others have been doing is trying to cast a vision for who we understand ourselves to be as we move forward into an uncertain future as the Methodist church specifically. And, and I'm a Methodist for a lot of good reasons, and one of them is because of the way we answer this question. What is unique about the Methodist approach to answering questions of faith. It's what's kept me in the Methodist church throughout my teenage and young adulthood years. What is, it's a big part of why I'm called to be a pastor, because I love our answer to this question. I want us to walk through that today. The scripture that's going to help us get there is one from um, Acts chapter 10. This is the entire chapter of, of Acts 10. We're not going to read the whole thing this morning. I'm going to summarize large chunks of it to expedite our time together. Um, if you don't know anything about the Bible, uh, the book of Acts comes in the New Testament. So this is um, the, the, the first book after the Gospels. It is the first book after the stories of who Jesus was and the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's actually a sequel to one of the Gospels. You may not have known that. Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke and Acts are meant to be read together. They're part one and part two. See, Hollywood thought they invented sequels. No, uh, gospel writer Luke did, right? Last time um, on the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, that's literally how the Acts, how Acts starts. It kind of gives you a recap, right? You know, the TV shows are like, tells you what, like, Acts does that in chapter one. So what Acts attempts to do is it's the Acts of the Apostles. It's, it's the story of the early church. How in the world did, a, did a, a prophet, savior, messiah, lord named Jesus inspire not just a movement within the Jewish faith, which is how it began, sort of a reform movement within Judaism. How did it become this expansive Multiple city, multiple locations, thousands of people in hundreds of faith communities, movement amongst Gentiles. How did this Jesus movement get outside of Jerusalem and spread like wildfire throughout the known world in their time? That's what the book of Acts is attempting to answer. And, and one of the, the sort of the turning point in the book is here in chapter 10. It's a turning point when Peter the one whom Jesus looked at and said, upon this rock I'll build my church, right? If you had to name a favorite, Peter, eh, 
baby, right? He certainly would have thought himself to be. Um, he's also the one who denied Jesus three times. Remember that story? And then Jesus forgave him three times, telling him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, that Peter, is going to have an experience with the Holy Spirit and with God's presence on a rooftop, and it's going to change the course of the church forever. So let's, let's, let's read. Before we do... Uh, Let's pray, and then let's go through our scripture together. We pray over scripture here in Lover's Lane and in Thrive because we believe it is a living text, and when we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of our reading it, it can make it come alive for us in new and exciting and surprising ways. So let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this time um, to hopefully rest. but to rest in a way that's also engaging, to allow our, our minds and our hearts and our spirits to be stirred this morning. I imagine every single person in this room brought with them at least one question that they're wrestling with right now, a question of faith, a question about you, about their lives, about the world, about loved ones, something that that they haven't quite worked through. We all carry these questions. And if we as the church, God, are going to be relevant, if we are going to be helpful if we are going to be faithful we've got to be willing to take these questions head on and to deal with them well so god would you speak to us through your words this morning found in acts chapter 10 would you allow the story of peter to inspire within us a desire to be led by you even and especially when we're led to new and exciting and surprising places Allow these words to leap off of the screens and off the pages of our Bibles into, the, into our hearts so that they could change the way that we live. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to summarize briefly the opening of chapter 10. It opens uh, on a man named Cornelius, and he's a centurion, which is an officer in the Roman army, right? Centurion is an officer who commanded 100 men, hence the name centurion. Uh, Generally, centurions would not have been liked by Jewish people, right? Um, Because they represented the military um, occupation and and empire that was, uh, you know, occupying and and oppressing their people in, in Israel. And so this centurion's different, though. Um, he's, uh, Cornelius is, is specifically named several times in this chapter as a man of righteousness who was well-liked and loved by the Jewish community because he was a man of faith who lived by the Jewish customs and um, followed the Jewish God. So Cornelius, this sort of weird centurion, um, is greeted by an angel. And this angel says, you need to send your guys, and noisy babies are so welcome in here, right? Seriously, everyone say hallelujah for noisy babies. Thank God our church is alive. Amen? Amen. So, yes, absolutely. If you ever stop hearing kids in church, then your church is dying. So, um, Cornelius is visited by an angel. The angel says, you need to send a couple of your guys down to Joppa. So it's a port city. And they need to go and find this guy who was named Simon, now named Peter. And they need to bring Peter back to you. And Cornelius, being a good soldier, says, okay, right, good. I mean, angel appearing before him, like, this would have been a wild experience. So he's probably also a little scared, but he says, great, I'm going to do that. So then we pick up in chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 9. It says this, and you'll see it on your screens. About noon the next day. As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. When I get hungry, I fall into a trance too. 
he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet came down, lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. These were all of the foods you were not allowed to eat as a good Jewish person. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. (laughs) He's like, go ahead and eat it, essentially was the voice saying. But Peter said, by no means, Lord. So he knows this is the voice of God. He says, "For no means, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. He's saying, I, I'm a good Jew, God. I'm not going to eat this stuff. He thinks maybe God's testing him. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times. And the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Peter has this wild experience where three times, now three is an important number for Peter, right? It's an important number for Peter. It's the number of times he denied Jesus, the number of times Jesus forgave him. Three is an important number for Peter. He knows that God's speaking his language. Three times God says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This wild experience of a sheet full of unclean food, and and God's saying this three times to him. And and so then Cornelius' men arrive. As he's sort of wrapping his mind around this stuff. And they tell Peter that they were sent for him. And and they spend the night at Peter's place. Because Peter's like, sure, of course I'm supposed to go to this Cornelius guy. And then they go up to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Which is another city on the coast up the ways. So Peter walks in. Cornelius falls to his knees, and, and Peter tells him to stand up because he's just another guy. You know, Cornelius thinks maybe Peter is like some great prophet, and Peter's like, oh, I'm nobody, I'm just a mortal, right? Um, Peter was such a humble guy, right? And, uh, and he says, stand up, stand up, and there's this whole group of people assembled there, right? Peter's like, I didn't know you were inviting a crowd over. Uh, and then Peter says, why did you invite me here? Because Cornelius would have known that it would have been against the Jewish law for Jews to associate going to the homes of Gentiles. That would have made them unclean, unworthy to go into the temple. So why did you invite me here? I mean, I came, but I know who you are, Cornelius. I know you know what the rules are. What inspired you to break the rules? And so Cornelius explains that he had a visit from an angel, and when he describes his experience, Peter's connecting the dots and realizing he had an experience, and Cornelius had an experience, and oh, okay, this is legit. And then he begins to share the gospel with these Gentiles, Cornelius and all of his friends and family who were gathered there. And this is how Peter shares the gospel with them. We pick up in verse 34. Peter says, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. Can we just stop there for a second? There are lines in the Bible that you can breeze past because we are Christians living in Dallas in 2020, right? And we've been steeped in Christian theology, and you've been coming to Lover's Lane for, I don't know, a a week or, or a decade or a lifetime. And we read that and we go, of course, God loves everybody. This would have been basically blasphemy for a Jewish person to preach this. God shows no partiality. The whole point of the Jewish tradition is that God chose us. And God loves us, and everybody will be blessed through us. Right? That is the understanding of the Jewish tradition that was being taught in Peter's day. Right? That is what he's just said flies in the face of that. Peter's been doing some processing on that wild experience, right? He's, he's changed a lot in a short amount of time. I truly understand, he says, that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, right? So he acknowledges that Israel was sent this message. Israel still has a unique place in God's heart. Preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That message spread through Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, but God was, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did. So he's talking about the, the other Jewish men who are with him, who have accompanied him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. That was sort of a, 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 a euphemism for crucifixion. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Again, radical stuff coming from a man who knows how to be a good Jew. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, so these are the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. The folks who hadn't done a single bit of keeping Jewish customs or traditions, the Holy Spirit is being poured out on them. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter said, can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. So that's, that's, the, that's chapter 10 of the book of Acts. This is, in my estimation, maybe the third most important event in the history of the Christian faith. The first being, of course, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. The second being the Pentecost experience of the Holy Spirit flooding the early church and allowing them to have the gifts of the Spirit. But this is a close number three. Because this is the moment that a small Reformation movement within a religion that barely anybody in the world at that time had ever heard of, Judaism, becomes a, 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 an expansive, inclusive, global movement that would take the world by storm within a few centuries. Right? This is the moment when everything changes for the Christian church. But I don't want to spend a day unpacking what Peter's saying here. This is a story that we've talked about a lot. Um, here at Lover's Lane. In fact, Stan and I even wrote a whole chapter or two on it in a book that we wrote a couple years ago called Together. It's for sale in the bookstore for $12.99. Go pick it up. I don't want to unpack everything that Peter's talking about here and about, uh, you know, what's clean and what's unclean. You know, it's, it's a powerful text. Instead, I want to take a little bit more of a broad view of what's happening here with Peter because I think that Peter represents for us where a lot of us and our friends and our family and our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids are going to be time and time and time again as we move further into this age of exile as the Christian church, as Methodists. He's having this experience where what he's always known, the faith that he's always had, the answers that always worked for him are no longer working. 
and something new has happened. A relationship with God has led him to a place that he's not sure he can go. And so he has to wrestle with this. And he's having to deal with a really big, really significant question. Is my faith in Jesus big enough to include non-Jews? That's a big question for Peter to ask. He baptizes these Gentiles before they're ever circumcised. That's a big decision for a man like Peter. So I, I want us to look at how do we deal with really big questions like the one that Peter deals with. Because I think that the Methodist faith has a unique voice to be able to offer something that I think people are really going to be looking for in the years and decades and generations to come. And what I'm talking about is the way that we approach questions of faith. And it's this, it's this thing that, was, uh, that we call the Wesleyan quadrilateral. You didn't know you were going to come to church and learn about a Wesleyan quadrilateral. Welcome to seminary class. You're back in confirmation class in sixth grade, right? I'm going to try and make this as exciting as possible. But this is important stuff. Because the way that a church says this is how we're going to answer difficult questions, man, that, that is going to be an important tool in your toolkit for the years to come. Yeah? The way that we answer this stuff, and the answer is not going to be whatever the preacher says. I know that's true because I'm not that smart right? I don't want y'all to look more like me. I want you to look more like Jesus. So let's talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, first, it's called that. It was this professor uh, back in the 60s, Albert Outler. He was like a really big deal uh, in Methodist circles, which means that you've never heard of him, right? Um, and, uh, and he said, Wesley had this way of answering and wrestling with really difficult questions, and it seemed to be this form that he would follow. And so he kind of distilled it down to this elegant system called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And it's actually a term that he hates because it, it, it gives the idea that it's this four-sided thing and everything's equal. And we're going to talk about not everything is. But John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, he was a guy that dealt with really big questions. He was living in a time when the church was changing big time. In his day and age, you didn't get outside the walls of the church. You didn't go to the places where the marginalized and the poor and the sick and the needy were. were. You, you sat in your cold stone building and you preached to a bunch of bored-looking people sitting there that didn't really want to be there. And that's it. That's all you did. And, and Wesley was willing to ask difficult questions to get there. So how did Wesley deal with this stuff and how can we deal with this stuff today? And how does Peter serve as a guide? So I got a really thick black marker that I just opened up. I had to search on Amazon for this thing. It's like crazy thick. It's like not safe, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it's real, it's real bad. Uh, so if you, if you smell it in the front row, just scoot back an inch. So uh, it's not a square. We're going to start with a circle. Look at that. That's a perfect circle right there. Man, my art skills are something else. So y'all buckle up. This is the first part of our journey. And this is, can you read that? Scripture. Sorry, guys, on the other side. This is going well. All right. Can we all see this-ish? I'll just tell you what it says if you can't read it. My pen, I got an 89 in penmanship in elementary school. The only I didn't get. Doesn't worry. That doesn't bother me still to this day. Um, <laughs> So this is scripture. This is where we start. Scripture in the Methodist tradition is primary, right? We always start with scripture. Um, if we don't go first to scripture, if we go first to something else, then we could very easily be following whatever our desire is and not what the eternal desire of God is, right? So we go to scripture first. Scripture is primary source of truth. It's also authoritative in our faith. We believe a couple things about scripture, though, that do differentiate us from other Christian denominations. It's important that we know this. Uh, we believe that scripture is inspired, 
right? We believe that God was a part of the act of writing scripture, that God was working through the men and women who authored these texts that we still hold very close to our hearts today, and there are primary access to Jesus Christ. But we do not believe that Scripture is infallible nor inerrant. And these are words that other denominations will absolutely use in defense of Scripture. And maybe this is the first time you're hearing this, but this is important for us to hear, that Scripture is not infallible nor inerrant. That means that not every single letter in the Bible that you're holding in your hands or on your smartphone today is exactly how God intended it, nor should it be taken as literal, timeless truth for us living in today, period, right? End of story. It's not what we believe we gotta, we got to be very clear about this. We do not believe that the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Stop it. Stop. That's an easy way to shut your brain off. That's not what we believe, okay? So we believe that Scripture is primary. It's authoritative. It is inspired. But it is not inerrant or infallible. The Bible, the Bible says that slaves should obey their masters. Oh, Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Bible says that women shouldn't talk in church. Oh, Bible says it. I, I believe it. That settles it, right, Reagan? Amen in the back? No, didn't think so, right? It's not a perfect metaphor, but Adam Hamilton talks about Scripture in three, he talks about it in terms of three buckets. There's the bucket of Scripture that is timeless and eternal and always true, always reveals the heart and desires and will of God. There is Scripture that at one point did these things and maybe revealed those, those truths and, and, and desires of God for a certain people living in a certain time. And then there are scriptures that maybe never gave us a clear picture of the heart or will of God. And these are scriptures that, that are certainly not going to be helpful for us in, in charting our course for today. Now, if this sounds scary to you, um, you know, I, I'm sorry. It's hard, right? We have to have a nuanced view of scripture. We can't have just a lowest common denominator of just read whatever the word says in English in 2020 and try to apply it directly to our lives today. That's just, that is not the way it was ever designed to be used. That's not the way that Peter ever used it. If we took that approach and we took it to first century Jews, they would have thought we were out of our minds. This is not, this is a relatively new um, creation in American Christianity, right? I would also add that not all scripture is created equal. Uh, there are parts of the Bible that have a certain gravity to them. Maybe it's because of the importance of the scene. You know, I look at Gar Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm paying attention. That scene has gravity to it. I need to look at every word, every, every uh, emotion, every single uh, punctuation mark, because that scene is important a whole lot more to me than whatever God said about whether or not I should mix different clothing types back in uh, the book of Leviticus, right? There are some parts of scripture that just don't have that kind of gravity to it. Maybe it's because of the frequency. God talks about love of neighbor a whole lot. We should probably pay attention to that um, more than some other parts like God says don't eat shrimp. All right, I love gumbo, so I'm sorry, God. I'm just going to have to reinterpret that one real quick. Um, <laughs> I mean, God did too. God sent Peter a sheet, and I'm assuming I didn't see shrimp explicitly mentioned, but I know there was a cup of gumbo on that sheet for Peter. Um, so, so Scripture is primary. It's it's the big circle. It's what holds everything else. Um, but it but it's also complicated. And sometimes we're going to come up to a question of faith that Scripture doesn't answer in a clean cut and clear way. Right? Peter thinks that Scripture is clean cut and clear. When he first goes up to that rooftop and encounters God's spirit, he tells God, no, I'm not going to eat this food because Scripture has told me it's unclean. Scripture has told me I should live my life by not eating this food. No, I'm not going to do that, God. Quit testing me. And yet God corrects him three times. 
insisting that rather than leaning on what God has said at one time, commanding God's people, that maybe Peter should instead listen to what God is commanding of him now. There are times when God is going to lead us to do something different than what we've done before. More than a God of dietary laws, God says, I'm not, a, I'm not a God that is as concerned about what foods do or do not go into your body. God reminds Peter that God is a God who is the judge of righteousness and goodness. And if God says it's clean, then it's clean, period. You missed that part of scripture, Peter. Those parts had more weight. I wasn't as concerned about what you put in your body. I was more concerned about righteousness and being good. So here's how I would distill this down. When we talk about Scripture as Methodists, we talk about Scripture here at Lover's Lane, of course we hold primarily to Scripture, but sometimes God may ask us to hold it differently. Sometimes you may encounter something in your life that forces you to look again at what you think Scripture is saying. Are we so proud, are we so egotistical that we think we have figured Scripture out once and for all? Thousands of years, the most intelligent men and women on earth have been trying to figure this stuff out. But I did it. You should laugh. I figured it out. Me. I did it. We're done. Everyone else can stop working. I got it all sorted out. I know what Scripture says, right? No, sometimes we have to be willing to hold Scripture differently. And we have to remember that Scripture's primary purpose in all of this has always been to put us into relationship with God. If the Scripture is not putting into relationship with God then hold it differently. It's not working. Next up, we have a circle down here, and I'm going to try and not make it fall this time, that we call tradition. Hey, that wasn't too bad. That wasn't terrible. Uh, tradition. So in the Methodist church, in, in John Wesley's sort of way, he, he believed that tradition was an important part of answering difficult questions. When we say tradition, we mean the tradition of the church. We mean the last 2,000 years of church history of really, really smart women and men, church fathers and mothers, who have done a whole lot of thinking and a whole lot of praying and a whole lot of conversating. And, and they've arrived at some answers to some questions that we've had for a very long time. And it might be wise of us to actually bend an ear and listen, Right? Peter does this. In Peter's day, uh, tradition was everything, right? Who you've been, where you've been, who your people are, what your story is, that's everything. It is life or death for the Jewish people to understand their tradition, not just in terms of life or death on earth, but it was a salvation question. Do we understand how God has moved before? Do we understand the people that we've always been? And so Peter has to kind of go against the grain, he has to be willing to step beyond his tradition. He consults it. He says, no, 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 God, I'm not going to eat that food because I know, I know because I was raised well, I know the tradition, I don't eat this stuff. And it's Peter's job to then move beyond that as God leads him outside of where his tradition has gone before. I want to say a word about this for us today, though. See, we're not living in the same day and age that Peter did. We don't have the same relationship to tradition that Peter did. First century Jews, tradition, that was a much bigger circle. Very important, right? Today, we see the importance of tradition on the decline very fast, right? Think about younger people living in the world today. The, the, where we've been, what we've done, the way we've always done things, that is not a value that's uplifted as much anymore, is it? No, we value the new and the novel and the, and the creative Right? And that's good. That's not always a bad thing. If we hold on too tightly to, to, to tradition, it can lead us to, to you know, wish for the good old days that are never going to be reconstructed. Right? 
Even scripture tells us, Ecclesiastes tells us, don't go wishing for the good old days. That, that is foolish. You're never going to go back there. At the same time, though, the new, the novel, the creative, it's not always perfect either. And we've got a culture that is celebrating this, right? And, and innovation, and that's great. It leads to smartphones, and it, and it leads to, you know, delicious coffee, I guess. Or it lead, leads to lights and, and TV screens and all sorts of cool rocket ships and colonizing Mars. Awesome. Great. The church has a unique position to be a voice that actually values tradition. And this is going to be a countercultural stance that we take as we move forward. Because it's not going to be valued. It's not going to be generally something that's celebrated in our, in our more general, broad, majority culture. We're going to be a people that say, you know what, we, we actually do listen to the folks that were living and dying 2,000 years ago because maybe they had access to God in a way that we don't. Maybe Peter, who actually walked and talked and slept and ate next to Jesus, as he says, he was a unique witness. Maybe Peter's got something to say about this. Maybe we can humble ourselves to, to subscribe ourselves to a spiritual life and faith that doesn't just come from whatever someone just thought of yesterday, but instead is built upon thousands and thousands of years of prayer and fasting and meditation and walking with God. The Wesleyan quadrilateral suggests that once we've consulted Scripture, the wise person considers what it is the tradition of the church has to say on a given subject. At our best, I think at its best, what our, we use tradition as a map of where we've been, not only to know where we are, but also to know where we are able to go. Right? It helps you set your trajectory to know where you've been. And even when we disagree with it, it can help us to set the course for where we're headed. So Peter doesn't stop being Jewish. right? He doesn't erase his tradition just because he loves Gentiles. He just rethinks what Judaism means to him. So right now in the Methodist church, we're in a season where we're having to rethink what being Methodist means to us. That's why we're talking about this stuff. So you don't stop love and tradition just because you challenge it. You don't stop loving where you've been just because you see yourself moving in a new direction. Sometimes you just got to rethink what you valued this whole time. Next is reason. We're going to put another circle here. Reason. And if it looks like they're sort of blending into each other, that's because they do. That's, that's by design. So um, Wesley lived in the age of enlightenment. Um, Oh, God, I'm running way too long. i got to hurry up. Lord, how y'all are so patient. How have y'all been sitting here this whole time? It's a quarter after ten. Yeah, no one was going to say anything in the back, guys? I'm up here nerding out, and we're running a quarter after ten? Golly. All right. Here's this. Keep this real simple. Use your brains. Okay, next. I mean, literally, that's all I have to say. Just use your brains. God gave them to you. Next is experience. I'm not kidding. We're done on reason. Okay. Next is experience. Um, this is like lightning round. So uh, Wesley also, uh, this, this was sort of unique about Wesley. He, he actually valued the individual human experience and the collective human experience. Um, so he thought that the way in which you encountered God uh, w was not just necessary to understanding faith, it was necessary to the church as a whole body, right? Because uh, the way he put it one time is um, the, the promises of Scripture I get to enjoy, right? Um, it's one thing to read Scripture to talk about knowing what it's like to be saved by Jesus' grace. It's another thing to feel that blessed assurance as Wesley said, in that moment of baptism or in that quiet moment in your own room when you accepted Christ into your heart, right? 
Um, it's one thing to talk about scripture and to talk about tradition and to use our brains. It's another thing to experience the love of God in your soul, right? And this, he actually would argue, is maybe more important than these two things. Because the way in which God is moving within your heart and stirring in your spirit and leading you in this very moment is something that we've got to pay attention to because God is a living God, right? A living God who is still moving today. So I would say we can't really fully understand God until we fully understand how all of God's children see God. It's why we're all here. It's why we gather as an eclectic body. It's why diversity is such an important value here at Lover's Lane because we believe in this as a window into understanding the great questions of faith. So, why did I lead you down this rabbit trail today? This is a map. It's a toolkit. It's a whatever you want to call it. It's a way of approaching the really hard questions of faith that I imagine you're dealing with, your children are dealing with, your brother is dealing with, your uncle is dealing with, your mom is dealing with, whomever you know and love who's wrestling with the question of faith. This is a way that we can start to get at some of that stuff. This is not a quick, easy fix. This takes time. It takes wrestling. You are going to have to sit in your questions and your doubts for a season. But I promise you, in my life, this has led me to answers that I can plant both feet on and stand on firm ground. Because I'm held by scripture, even if I'm holding it differently. I'm asking what the great tradition and witness, the cloud of witnesses are saying to me. I'm using my own God-given brain. And then I'm asking, how is God moving in my life and the lives of those around me? In what ways do I see the Spirit moving today? I want to close with a quote. This is from Bishop Will Willimon. I read this this week. It says what I've wanted to say better than I ever could, and he says it a lot shorter, too. Let's go. This is the way it is sometimes in the church. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then the church has the adventurous task of discovering new areas of his lordship, expecting surprises and new implications of the gospel which cannot be explained on any basis other than our Lord has shown us something we could not have seen on our own, even if we were looking only at Scripture. This does not mean an undisciplined flight of fancy into our own bold new ideas or the pitiful effort to catch the wind of the latest trend in the culture under the guise of seeking new revelation. Rather, It means that we are continuing to discover the significance of the scriptural witness that Jesus Christ is Lord and to be faithful to the divine prodding. Faith, when it comes down to it, y'all hear this, faith, when it comes down to it, is our often breathless attempt to keep up with the redemptive activity of God, to keep asking ourselves, what is God doing? Where on earth is God doing, is God going now? Amen. No prayer. Reagan, come on up. We're done. There we go. All right.